Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. We're going to be in uh, the end of 1 Timothy this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go to the end of 1 Timothy. We'll be in chapters 5 and 6 both. Before we get to 1 Timothy, I want to help us be thinking along the lines of what we're going to be looking at in this passage. Uh, So recently, I have been shopping for life insurance uh, I used to have life insurance, and I switched to insurance companies, and then had to get new life insurance, and so I've been in the process of looking at life insurance, and I guess when you look at life insurance, they look at you, too. You know what I'm saying? So, like, uh, you know, when, on the phone, they're like, you know, do you smoke or drink, and they want to know, do you any any um, pre-existing conditions, are you on any prescriptions or anything like that, and that, that all makes perfect sense to me. It's health-related. I get it. But then they ask, do we have permission to look at your driving record? And I said, well, yeah, you can look at my driving record. It's clean. I've never caused an accident in my life. And so uh, I thought about it for a second. I was like, I guess that makes sense. I mean, if it's a life insurance policy, I mean, they want to make sure you're not going to, you know, you're not prone to car accidents. And I guess also, doesn't your driving record tell you a little bit about whether you're, you know, responsible and uh, they wanted to know, am I going to be bungee jumping or jumping, jumping out of a plane anytime soon? Stuff like that. And uh, so, you know, I go through all this stuff. But then they asked this, the last question was, do we have permission to look at your credit report? And, uh, well, of course I said yes, because I guess that's, a, that's part of the process. But I had to think through, why would you ask such a thing? Why would uh, a life insurance application lead to a credit report check. And the more I thought about it, I thought, well, this, it does kind of make sense, right? I mean, what if they find that I just took out a gigantic loan and went into a huge amount of debt, right? Um, Is there anything in my credit report that would indicate that I'm a danger to myself? And doesn't, I mean, not to, I don't want to step on anyone's toes, but doesn't your credit report at least paint a partial picture of how you manage things? right? How, what kind of steward you are, right? So I think we all understand that the way we handle finances does tell a little bit about who we are, what we value, and what we find important. It's not the whole picture because you can be very good with money and a real bum, jerk, right? Crumb bum. Or you can be bad with money but be very reliable and trustworthy and solid in other areas of your life. So it's not the whole picture, but it is certainly part of the picture. Our attitude and our uh, approach toward financial resources and money does factor into the whole picture of who we are. And for those of us that are Christians, it factors into our worldview, who we believe Jesus is, how we respond to Jesus, how we demonstrate God's faithfulness in our lives, right? Because all throughout the Bible, it touches on the topic of finances. It touches on money. Uh, Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
And so we understand that while the way that we, our attitude about money is not the most important thing about us, it is part of who we are, and it shows part of our faith, it shows part of our worldview. So this morning, we're going to look at three different segments of the end of 1 Timothy, where Paul instructs Timothy, the church leaders, and the church members in their attitudes towards money. Now, we have this uh, practice at Truvine, we've had this since the beginning. This goes back ten, over 10 years, where we don't pass an offering plate around the church. I think many people appreciate that. I know that visitors appreciate it. We don't pass an offering plate around the church. Uh, I think we've probably passed the plate less than five times in the history of our church, and that's only for special circumstances. The way that we do offering is, as you know, the offering box in the back, or text giving, or online giving. Now, the reason we made that decision early, early on in the life of our church was because we wanted people to feel comfortable. We wanted people to know that we are not after their money, but I'm going to tell you a secret. We are after your heart. And I know that if Jesus gets your heart, everything comes with it. Uh, but we're not after people's money. And if we, don't, uh, if we don't put people on edge by constantly passing a plate around, that frees me up to then teach the Bible faithfully and effectively without people putting a wall up like, oh, you're just going to take up another offering. Oh, this ser- it's a money sermon. Get, get the plates out. They're going to be passing those around. So since you know we're not going to do that, well, we're not going to pass the plate, but you will have an opportunity to respond at the end through giving. But since you know that, uh, you can put your guard down and just receive God's word the way you would any other week and understand that this is part of Christian discipleship. This is part of what the Bible teaches. We normally do a sermon that talks about biblical finances four times a year. It has been almost a year since we've touched on this topic, just because we got into this uh, series in 1 Timothy and with some of the, with everything that's going on, as we've been calling it in Philadelphia, uh, we've been uh, taking a different approach. But today we're going to get back to that rhythm of maybe three to four times a year, just looking at what the Bible has to say about finances, because this is not the whole picture of our discipleship, but this is a part of uh, the picture of our discipleship. So in Ephesus, and you should be familiar with this if you've been following along with this series, in Ephesus there were leaders in the church, and they were doing a pretty bad job. This is not to say all of them, but there were a group of leaders in the church in Ephesus who were doing a really bad job, and we find out as we look at today's passage that they were really after money. They were greedy, and so they were taking advantage of uh, widows, and they were uh, teaching um, kind of like philosophy, not theology, And they were doing that so that they could get paid to do that because that was a common practice at this time. There were philosophers who would just go around and teach and uh, give their opinions on the world and people would support them financially. And I think these church leaders in Ephesus, some of them saw that and they're like, well, we'll just do a religious version of that and that's how we'll uh, make money. And as it's going to say in this passage, uh, teaching theology is not a means to getting paid. Uh, It's not a means to getting rich or making a lot of money. And uh, that's something I've learned uh, firsthand. So uh, 
there are these leaders. Paul wants these leaders out. So he puts Timothy in place and says, Timothy, you're going to have to confront this. You're going to have to deal with this. You're going to have to get these greedy swindlers out of the church. But then Paul provides the correct view of finances, the correct view of money. Paul does not say, as some early church heretics taught, that all money is evil. As we're going to read in this passage, Paul says it's the love of money that's evil. Some people think money is evil, and so they choose voluntary poverty, or they just they don't want anything to do with money. Usually what they mean is like having to work for money is evil. Uh, but the, money is not evil. The love of money is evil, but money itself is incredibly useful and uh, beneficial in many, many circumstances. So this passage addresses money from three different angles. We're going to look at all three of these today. This is kind of the end of 1 Timothy. We have a few more things we'll touch on in the next two weeks, but we're getting to the end of 1 Timothy. So there's a portion in chapter 5 and two portions in chapter 6 that we're going to look at today. We're just lumping these all together and looking at what the, the end of 1 Timothy has to say about finances. There's three main ideas that we're going to look at today. The first main idea is this. There is a need to support those that lead, preach, and teach. That's the first idea. The second idea is for leaders and others to practice contentment. And the third idea is to be generous with your resources. So support those that lead, teach, and preach. Practice contentment. Be generous with your resources. If you look at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 18, I'm just going to read these two verses and stop and explain these two verses. It says, uh, Paul says to Timothy, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall, not, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the labor laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, Paul goes on to say something very similar to this in 1 Corinthians 9, which we'll touch on in a moment. But this idea of supporting uh, comes from this word double honor. The elders who rule well are considered worthy of double honor. That word honor means two things. Double honor means twofold honor, okay? There's two types of honor that you uh, would give to those elders who rule well, especially in preaching and teaching. The first kind of honor is kind of a just respect and reverence. The second type of honor has to do with financial support. It's the way we use the word honor when we talk about honoring a sale or honoring a coupon or honoring a deal, right? It's a financial honor, right? And so he's saying that those who, the elders who rule well, who preach and teach and work hard at those things are worthy of double honor. Now I realize it's, you know, ironic that I have to teach this. I get this. Like I feel all the irony of this, not irony, but like the weirdness of this passage. I get it. Uh, but he says they're worthy of double honor. He gives this illustration from the book of Deuteronomy. He says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And he says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 9. He gives this, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. So there's going to be a picture up uh, of uh, two oxes, two oxen, sorry, two oxen threshing. Is it up there? Okay, good. So you see this picture. Uh, there's two oxen. There's a big pile of wheat 
uh, or it could be barley. It's a big pile in the middle. And what they would do is create a circle around the pile and lay it down. And the oxen would walk over it. And as the oxen stomped on it, it would separate the, uh, the chaff from the wheat so that you got the good stuff separated from the waste, right? But the oxen would always want to eat some of what they were walking on. And so at one point they would muzzle them so that they wouldn't eat it, but then they realized, well, if they weren't able to eat, then they wouldn't work. And so they took the muzzles off the ox, and they said, okay, you should at least let them eat a little bit of what they're working on, right? You should let them gain sustenance from their job. Isn't that how pretty much every job works, right? And so Paul just makes the argument, it should be no different for those that serve uh, elders that rule well in the ministries of preaching and teaching, that's how every job works, is there's some sort of, Paul makes this argument, no soldier serves in the military without receiving pay, right? And so there's an expectation here. Now, uh, that picture up there is actually called, Two Pastors Meet with the Treasurer. <laughs> Just kidding. That's a jo- that, so those oxen in Hebrew are named Him and Jan Eric. <laughs> and that's, uh, I think, that's Abby and Jerabel up in the chair, uh, driving the inside joke. Okay, so Paul uses this metaphor all throughout the New Testament. Don't muzzle the ox while he's treading out the grain, meaning those that work should receive some benefit from the work that they do. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 9, he actually builds on that metaphor, and he says this. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, 9. The Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. So when the Lord directed that, he says the Lord directed this, that those who proclaim the gospel uh, should make their living from the gospel. Well, when did the Lord direct that? He's He's saying Jesus said this. When did Jesus say that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel? Well, he said it in Luke 10 and Matthew 10 when he sent the disciples into the cities ahead of him and he said, when you go, don't take money with you. Don't take an extra um, cloak. Don't take anything with you. Don't put money in your belts. When you go, arrive and eat whatever they give you. Live with them. And he says, a laborer is worthy of his wages, which Paul interprets as those who proclaim the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Jesus is essentially saying, if you do a good job, they'll take care of you. If you don't, They won't, but you're not to rely on your own independent wealth. You're to do a good job, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And then Paul says the same thing here. Those who rule well, who do a good job, especially in the areas of preaching and teaching, are worthy of double honor. So this is the model that even Jesus followed. You might know this, that Jesus was supported by those who that he ministered to. It says this in uh, Luke chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. I want to read this really quickly. Soon afterwards, Jesus began going around from one city and village to, one, to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. Also, some women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, 
Herod's steward and Susanna and many others who were contributing to Jesus' support out of their private means. So these women in particular, this is very similar to what's going on in Ephesus, right? These women are supporting the work of Jesus and the work of the disciples. Now here's the difference. In Ephesus, it's these elders and these men who are going and manipulating and taking advantage of women. In the case of Jesus, these are women he's already ministered to. These are women he's cast demons out of. This is simply for them an act of gratitude. And it's an act of support because, Jesus, I've seen what you did in my life, and I believe that you can do that in other people's lives. So I want to support you so that you can dedicate yourself to doing that type of thing. It's absolutely voluntary. This is not a tax, this is not a requirement, it's not a demand. This is a voluntary contribution that, people made, that these women made out of a sense of gratitude because Jesus had already ministered to them. The purpose of this support is to free, it was to free Jesus up or Paul or Timothy or others. It was to free them up to dedicate themselves to the tasks of preaching and teaching. What they're dealing with in Ephesus is teachers who are not equipped to do a good job. And Paul's saying, well, we better equip them to dedicate all of their time to this. If they're doing a good job, let's give them as much time as they need to do the preaching and the teaching and uh, support them as they do that. Now, there is some balance that comes to this, and it's based in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, this is written also to elders, says, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. So Peter, now we're in First Peter here, Peter is saying, hey, if you're an elder, you're to do this voluntarily. You're not to do this so that you can get rich. He actually uses the phrase sordid gain, which was translated, some people would call it this old kind of English phrase, filthy lucre, like filthy money, you know. Um, so Peter's saying, Listen, you're not to get into this to make money, which is dealing with the same issue that the church in Ephesus was dealing with. This is not a uh, lucrative career for you to jump into and take advantage of people. So it's interesting because you have these two ideas are balancing each other out. You have Paul telling the church in Ephesus, hey, don't make those who, the elders who rule well, especially in the areas of preaching and teaching, don't make them do this for free. But then Peter's saying to the elders, you should be willing to do this for free. Does that make sense? It, it keeps both groups kind of in check to make sure that the motives are pure. This is kind of how I talk to my kids sometimes when they're fighting over Legos. <laughs> and uh, I'll, say, I'll say to um, Emma, I'll say, well, you know, those are Aiden's Legos and you can't just go take them and you, you know, they are his and you should ask. But then I'll go to Aiden and I'll say, you really should be sharing these Legos. You know, like you have like 40,000 Legos. I mean, there's, that's how many Beyblades you have. That's how many Legos you have. You have everything that's ever been invented. So maybe you can be, gener so I'm going to both sides and saying, well, here's what your attitude should be, share, be generous, right? Your attitude should be, don't be demanding. Don't just take. 
And that's, I think, the New Testament's balance on this topic. It's to the, to the church, it's, hey, don't be stingy. Support those who do a good job in leading and preaching and teaching. But the, to those who are leading and preaching and teaching, it's, you shouldn't be greedy. You, know, you, you should be willing to do this voluntarily. And so uh, I, I want to get really practical for that uh, with this for a moment. I want you to know that if, I, if we were in a situation, I would do this voluntarily. Well, I would preach and teach voluntarily. I would probably not have all the meetings. Uh, but but if, if we were in a situation where I had to have another job, I would still preach and teach for free because I just can't stop. My wife hears 50 sermons a week. I always got one in my back pocket. So if we had to, if our, we were in a situation, I would preach and teach for free. I wouldn't um, do other things, probably, because I'd be at work doing, make, you know, earning a living and making ends meet. But I would, do the, I would do the core basic stuff just like everybody else does as a volunteer, uh, and I would do that. I also want to take a moment, because I don't think this is said enough in our church or any church, and I just want to say thank you. Because our church is generous, and I have never been forced to get a second job. I've been able to dedicate all my time for the last 12 years to pastoring our church full-time. And I just, I want to say thank you, because that's because God has made you generous, and God has given you resources that you can share with us. And so, uh, thanks. Okay, all right. Now, I know that ultimately you're, you're giving to Jesus. I know that. And I'm, you know, I'm grateful that you do that out of obedience to him. And uh, obviously we eat well in my house, so that's going well. Now, I also want to add, because I was told last night that I could be a model for Walmart <laughs> because I wear these excellent Walmart shirts so I would go back to my career of modeling if I had to, but I'd rather just give Walmart the free, you know, advertisement. So, and just everything I'm wearing is from Walmart today. So Sam's Club, Walmart, they have excellent stuff. And it's a surprise. What I like about clothes from Walmart is every time you pull them out of the laundry, they're a different shape, a different size. Those, Sometimes the neck is stretched out bigger than it was last time. It's shorter. What, you know, like, it's cool. It's a surprise. It's like a new shirt. All right. Enough of this, enough of this nonsense. So this is the first instruction that Paul gives, that they should support those that lead and preach and teach. It's interesting that Paul says that because even in the midst of that concept being abused, by these bad elders, he doesn't throw the concept out, he just brings correction. That those who do this well should be supported. Now the second uh, instruction that he gives, it starts off, this is, this is directed toward the leaders in that church, but I, I believe it applies to everybody in the entire congregation. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. Paul says, godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot, we cannot take anything out of it either. 
If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So I want to remind you, this church in Ephesus is dealing with elders who thought that being in church leadership was a way to get rich. And Paul is saying, it's not. He's, he says, now, there is a profit, there is a benefit to godliness, but that benefit is coupled with contentment. It's not a financial benefit, but there is a benefit. There is a gain. There is a spiritual profit. But uh, being in this role is, it should be coupled with contentment. The word contentment means satisfaction or sufficiency. To be content is to be satisfied. You look at your house, your car, your fridge, and you're satisfied with what God's given you, that's contentment. Now, what this shows me, verse 7 says this, we have brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it either. That tells me that we are stewards. You don't get to keep, I mean, whatever you, when you die, you don't get to take your car with you, your house with you, your credit report with you. None of that goes with you, right? Naked you came into the world and you go out the same way. I mean, hopefully not totally naked, buy some fine clothes at Walmart. But, you know, you don't get to take anything with you, right? So whatever you have in your life, you are stewarding for God. It actually belongs to him. You're managing it. And so you want to be a good manager of the things that God has given you, right? You want to be faithful and trustworthy with those things that God has given you to manage because we are stewards or managers of what God's given us. Verse 10, uh, I think, is a warning. Verse 10 says, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So as I said earlier, it's not money. This is a misquoted New Testament proverb. We often hear money's the root of all evil. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money. I mean, haven't we done good things with money at times, right? Can't money be something God uses? Money itself is not inherently evil. It's the love of money, that obsession with it. That's the root of, it says, all sorts of evil. And it continues in verse 10. Some, by longing for money, have wandered away from the faith and pierce themselves with many griefs. So here's two negative consequences of the love of money, which is the root of all evil. People were wandering away from the faith, chasing money instead of chasing Jesus. Because they, they saw that following Jesus is not a get-rich-quick scheme. In fact, sometimes following Jesus is diametrically opposed to wealth. Right? It, it actually costs Right? And so some of these Christians in Ephesus were seeing that, you know, this Jesus thing is, this is not making me money. And so they abandoned the faith, it says in verse 10. They wandered away from the faith. And so that's one of the negative consequences of a love for money is it, it has caused some people to walk away from Jesus. It's caused some people to wander away from the faith because to them, money was more important than Jesus. It also says in verse 10, they have pierced themselves with many griefs. 
The love of money can create a lot of stress, tension, anxiety, or as the passage says, many griefs. It can bring grief in your life. The love of money can. And it actually says, and I think this is interesting, it says they have pierced themselves. This is a self-inflicted grief. They, we, we, when we love money, we bring grief on ourselves. We can't even blame anyone else. So let me ask this question. Have you ever brought grief on yourself by your love for money? Have you ever had a self-inflicted wound in, in your heart because of your love for money? Brought maybe some anxiety, brought some worry, damaged a relationship over some money, over some dollars. Have we self-inflicted, uh, do we have self-inflicted wounds because we prioritized our love of money over love for God or love for people. So Paul is telling, this is, like I said, directed to the leaders because he doesn't want to get into the situation with, where the elders are just going around trying to make money. He's saying to the leaders, but he's also saying to the whole congregation, practice contentment. Be satisfied. Now, how do we practice contentment? I think the primary thing we can do is not always be looking at what other people have. When you start looking at what other people have, you are immediately dissatisfied. Well, look at their house. Look at their car. Does, that, does anyone, any of you feel like it's fun to drive through a nicer neighborhood and like, oh, look at those homes. I don't know why, you don't feel better afterwards, do you? I don't, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you guys clean nice houses all the time. So, right. I, I, I don't know why we do these things. Go walk through a car dealership and look at cars you'll never be able to buy. Or go to like one of these fancy high-end stores like Target and <laughs> look at the shirts you'll never be able to buy. You know, like... <laughs> getting a lot of mileage out of this joke. Um, no, I don't know why we do this to ourselves because what it brings is discontentment. By the time we've driven through the nice neighborhood or gone to the Porsche dealership, we're not content, we're, we're unsatisfied. You know, and so we begin to think about, oh, what I wouldn't do if I had a little more money, I really would like one of these, and then when we get to our midlife crisis, man, we just splurge on something, and, and it, it brings discontentment, unsatisfaction, those types of things. So I think that, uh, frankly, one of the safest things to do is rather than looking what other people have, be thankful for what you have. You know, take a walk through your house. Thank God that you have running water, electricity, you know, stairs, those types of things. Uh, a fridge that works, assuming you have all of those things. But just thank God for the things that you have. Practice gratitude. Thanking God for the things that he's given you rather than driving around looking at the things he hasn't given you. Okay. Practicing contentment is one of Paul's instructions. And then finally, the third instruction is this. Be generous with resources. This is also in chapter 6. It's verses 17 through 19, just three short verses. Paul says, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. 
Instruct them to do good, be rich in good works, and be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So he says, and this is to the broader congregation, instruct those who are rich not to be conceited, right? But there's a little bit of a uh, play on the word rich here in these verses. He says, he's talking to those that are financially rich that they should not be conceited, Uh, And they should put their confidence in God who richly supplies. So it's a reminder that if you're wealthy, if you're financially well off, you didn't uh, get that simply by your hard work, although your hard work was part of it, but God provided it for you. This, well, let me finish on the word which. So richly supplies, and then he says that they should be rich in good deeds. Verse 18, rich in good works. So there's the financial wealth, which is provided by God, but then you should be rich in good deeds. Now, I think the way that we look at this is really important for how we understand money, how we understand wealth. When a person has financial wealth, did they earn it or did God give it to them? And I believe the answer in many cases is both. Now, The reason this matters is because we don't want to create a concept where God gives some people money and other people he doesn't and it's just the luck of the draw based on what God decides to do. We want to incentivize work, right? We want to make sure that people understand that like the decisions that you make, the training that you get, all matter. And that you work and receive compensation for that work. But then we understand that God is a huge factor in this because he's the one that providentially distributes compensation. He oversees the whole universe. So he's the one that makes sure that you get paid. And and so sometimes people get in situations where they, they do the work and they don't get paid. They put in the effort and they're not compensated. And so we, at that time, we appeal to God and say, God, there's, this is unjust. This is unfair, and we need you to step in. I did this job. They didn't pay me. God, I need you to step in and do something about this and, and bring justice. Uh, and so both of these ideas are true, that our effort matters, but also God is in charge, and God is in control. Verse 17 They're told not to put their confidence or their trust in their wealth, which the distinction here is, are you trusting in your provision or are you trusting in the provider? Jesus is the provider. Now, if Jesus has given you finances, because this this passage is directed to those that are wealthy, so I'm pretending everybody here is wealthy, okay? I'm pretending. I know I'm pretending. I'm pretending everyone here is wealthy. If you're in that situation, you can't put your confidence in your bank statement. Have we not seen over the last 10, 15 years how fickle finances can be? Have we not seen the stock market, a great recession not that long ago, the housing market? Have we not seen those things be unpredictable, unreliable, I remember in, uh, was it 2007-ish, 2007, 2008, the Great Recession? I remember, because we lived in New York when that started, I, re- I remember people losing huge sums from their retirement 
I, I knew a guy that lost a million dollars in a day. Uh, who knows what he kept, but he lost a million dollars in a day. Uh, we've seen the stock market, the job, the job market, the housing market, the entire economy be unstable and unpredictable in the past. So if your confidence is in those things, it's going to get rocked. And we're in a, a period of rocking right now, aren't we? So we want to put our trust not in our bottom line, but in Jesus and in our provider. Verse 18 tells those that are wealthy what they should do with the resources that God has given them. He says, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So if you have resources, if God has given you those resources, if you've worked hard for a long time and accumulated wealth, God... Paul says to Timothy, tell them to be ready to share. Tell them to be generous. Tell them to do good deeds and good works with the resources that God has given them. Now, I've said this many, many times here, and this is a, something I've memorized and I suggest you memorize. The purpose of prosperity is generosity. Not comfort, not luxury, but generosity. I do believe that generally... God wants people to prosper and he wants to provide resources. I don't think we're supposed to be broke. I don't think we're supposed to be poor. But when God does prosper us, I also don't think we're supposed to be living luxurious, lavish lives. I think we're supposed to give as much of that away as possible. That we can be wealthy but still live simply still live within our means so that we can help as many other people as possible. Does that make sense? Yes. And so the purpose of prosperity is generosity, not luxury. So Paul tells them to serve other people, to share, and to be rich in good deeds. Let me just give some examples. If, you, if God has blessed you financially, and you're, as it would say in this passage, if you're among those that are wealthy, you look for opportunities to bless other people. Here are ways you bless other people. If someone's in a tough spot, help them out. If someone's car is broken down or dead, help them with a the down payment if you can. And do that with his, by honoring, preserving their dignity and honoring them and blessing them. Uh, pay someone's rent. Pay someone's tuition. You know, like get someone's groceries sometime. We're not, I don't think we're talking about here becoming someone's regular sole source of income. I think we're talking about a good deed, which is literally what the passage says, or a good work. Like find isolated moments where you can help, where you can step in and provide assistance with your resources. Uh, it may mean buying a plane ticket or paying a light bill, which in Philadelphia means every electric appliance but it's the light bill. You know, finding opportunities to extend a hand and be practical, but also creative with these types of things and also willing to share and able to do that. Uh, and then as you show that generosity, you create uh, momentum. You know, my family and I have been the recipient of other people's generosity many, many times. Um, and so that has created in us a sense of gratitude where we want to then be those who display generosity, right? Does that make sense? I don't always want to be the person getting the gift, although I do like that. 
I want to be the person giving the gift sometimes, you know? And I also, so this is something that was a wake-up call for me and, and for my wife, uh, because it had to be, because it was a wake-up call for me. I got tired of hearing of really legitimate, good needs and being able to do nothing about it. I just, I got tired of being in a position where we would hear about a ministry that needed some help and I would say, I believe in that, but I got nothing. I got tired of hearing about a family that would need, needed groceries or needed help paying their rent and saying, I want to help you, but I can't because I haven't managed my money well enough. And so for me, that, be, being in that situation enough where I wanted to help but couldn't flipped a switch in my head where it's like, I'm going to start making the choices so that soon I can help. I can chip in, you know, a little here, a little there to bless other people because as I said earlier, my family's been the recipient of that from others. Now, last week I talked to you about this kind of program that they put in place for the widows in the church in Ephesus and how uh, there was an expectation that the church would care for those who had no other hope. I mean, their family wasn't going to take care of them. Obviously, if they're a widow, then they've lost their spouse and they're in this tough situation. And so the church was supposed to step up. As I was talking to you about that program that they started in First Timothy for widows, I shared with you about the potential housing crisis that may take place in the United States that uh, at some point in the next five months, potentially 43 million people will face eviction. 43 million people is roughly 11% of our population. That's a lot. That's one out of nine people. Now, that's not going to happen in Pennsylvania because they've extended the uh, protection, the no, no eviction law through the rest of this month. And in Philadelphia, they've extended it through the rest of this year. So it's locally, it's not going to be an immediate thing. But, you know, if I was in that situation and I had lost my job because of the coronavirus and I haven't been able to pay rent and I know that in January... I have eight or nine months rent due and no income, no job yet. And in January, they're going to expect the whole thing because the landlords are out too, right? If they're not collecting rent, they have a legitimate claim on that, right? I mean, if they want to voluntarily show compassion and mercy, they can. And I you know, think that's a good thing, but they're out too. So... Uh, if I was in that situation, I would be probably losing a little sleep, right? So we've had two weeks in a row. Last week we talked about the need for the church to take action and have a social responsibility. This week we've talked about being generous with our resources. So this is the response that I want to suggest this morning. Uh, we have as a church something we call benevolence fund. This is money that we distribute to people who are in a tough financial position. This is a totally separate fund. We do not run our church off of this fund, so we don't pay bills, we don't pay staff, we don't support missions out of our benevolence fund. Our benevolence fund is, goes totally 100% just to help people that are in a tough spot, and it is primarily reserved for those who are part of our church because we know these people, we have relationships with them and we know they're real. We don't just wait for people to come in off the street asking for help. We have relationships and there's accountability and there's transparency, all those good things that make the exchange of resources more comfortable, right? 
In 2020, we've already distributed more money from our benevolence fund than we ever have, and it's only August. We've distributed more food from our food pantry than we ever have, and it's only August. I mean, last year we broke our, we set our record for distributing seven tons of food from our food pantry. We've already done nine tons this year, and it's only August. We're on pace to do 13 or 14 tons of food in our community. We've distributed more money than we've ever distributed. I'm very glad that we've been able to do that, but I want to put this opportunity out there. Things are getting a little light in the benevolence area, and if, if you are not in a tough spot, meaning you have kept your job, you are able to make ends meet, and you have a little bit of extra money to spare, can I suggest that you think about making a gift to our benevolence fund? I believe we have our giving uh, uh, information is going to be up in a moment. It's the same way you would give normally. There's a box in the back. All we need you to do is designate, write the word benevolence. If you don't know how to spell benevolence, put it as close as you can and we'll figure it out. Just put Ben or or something like that because I'm not sure I can spell benevolence to help you out. If you give through text, you can just text an amount and then include the word benevolence in the text. If you give online through our website, you can select from the drop-down menu benevolence and you can give that way. Now, I will have no idea who does this. Only our financial people know this stuff. And so uh, I'm just making an invitation. We're not going to pass a plate this morning. Uh, But... I just want to make that need known to you. I would like us as a church to be prepared that come January 1st when people start getting eviction notices, I want to be prepared to help every person in our church that has a need. I don't think we can help all of Philly. I don't think we can help all of Pennsylvania. But if there's two or three families or four in our church that have a need, I, want, I don't want to have to say we can't help you to anyone in our church. I want us to be prepared for those that are in our household of faith. Does that make sense? So that if you are ready to give today, you can give today or sometime between now and the end of the year. Everything's tax deductible. It will not, it is all benevolence. You will not see me wearing fancy Target shirts. You know, none of that will go to a staff. None of it will even go to operating the church. It's literally just for to distribute as an act of generosity to a person who's in a tough spot. Does that make sense? So I'm going to leave that invitation open. That invitation is permanently open, actually. But the need is coming, and it's coming soon. All right, I want to pray for us. And uh, if, would you mind standing with me if you're here in the room with us? I want to pray that God would provide for us. As I said, the purpose of prosperity is generosity, not luxury. So I'm going to pray for provision and generosity. Jesus, it does seem like you do not want your people to live in permanent poverty and be broke. You want to provide for us. And so, Lord, I ask for your provision. I ask, God, that you would give new jobs to those that are in search of jobs. God, I ask for promotions and raises for those that have jobs. I ask for new opportunities, extra hours, overtime, all of those ways, gifts, inheritances, refunds, rebates, surprise checks, all of those ways, God, that money 
makes its way to us, I ask that you would sovereignly oversee those processes to make money available and then that you would move on our hearts to be generous with that money. That we would not choose luxury and fleshly comfort, but that we would choose generosity to support other people uh, in the name of Jesus and to uh, alleviate and lift off of them the burden that comes with not being able to pay bills. I pray that Jesus in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us this morning. Feel free to stick around and bump elbows and we'll see you next Sunday. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.